Um, I think we're going to do. Uh, we're going to do the questions again, or the. Uh, uh, we'll do an interactive case. This is provided by Helen. Uh, so, Helen, do you want to do the honors? Uh, sure. So, this is a young woman, previously healthy. Good Lord. Young woman, previously healthy, Asian, but with a smoking history, with a cough that responded to antibiotics. I think it likes only one microphone. Let's try that. Um, But then recurred six weeks later. Symptoms got uh, worse. She had back pain, which was initially attributed to the cough. And imaging here shows an infiltrated mass, which you can see is PET positive, and the histology on the biopsy on the right. So she had good performance status. Uh, the back pain was found to be due to bone metastasis in both T7 and T10. She had unremarkable labs. And what should we do? So please vote. <clears throat> okay. All right. Well done. Smart group, 88%. We get a B plus. You want to comment, Helen, and then the other two? Uh, well, so I think everybody's uh, paid attention to all the talks this morning that say we need biopsies when we guess we're often wrong. So this woman has some conflicting demographics. She's Asian, which gives her a high chance of an EGF receptor mutation, but she's also a smoker, which lowers that chance. And I think that's probably where the 8% with osimertinib with or without bevacizumab were thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's keep going. So the next thing is then, how do we biopsy? So um, do we do uh, uh, left lower lobe specifically just for EGFR, ALK, and ROS1? Do we go after the bone mat, T7, for the same? Do we do plasma testing uh, uh, for, by quote-unquote FDA-approved test, uh, plasma testing by another means, or none of the above? Ellen, you want to comment on this? So too? this is very interesting and is mostly what I was trying to get to by this somewhat tricky question. Um, so it, it's the, a very tricky question. It is a very tricky question. The actual answer is none of the above, so I'll explain why. So if you do a CT-guided biopsy of the left lower lobe and you're just looking for those three genes, then you're missing a lot of information. If you do a CT-guided biopsy of the bone metastasis, you can't get accurate genetic testing because of the processing that's required for the bone met, even though it's a bit safer to biopsy a bone than to biopsy lung. The only FDA-approved plasma test is only going to look for EGFR. Uh, Plasma testing by another test is actually a possible answer because as uh, Ludus shown you, and as we looked at from the very small amount of data that I showed you, the plasma testing, if positive, can be used for actionable um, mutation uh, profiling. However, the real answer, in, in my view, is none of the above, and the none of the above is to do a tissue biopsy for next-gen analysis. You Comments, uh, Chair or Ludus? Yeah, com- well, I completely agree because you are missing uh, with the data that's coming out for um, RET inhibitors, the LOXA-292 looked very promising at ASCO. Um, I think we don't want to miss um, anything else we can target. Um, there are a couple of rare mutations which um, we haven't discussed yet, such as NTRAC mutations, mm-hmm. which have excellent uh, drugs and clinical trials and hopefully soon should be approved. 
Shara, anything to add? Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think starting with plasma is certainly reasonable because the yield of um, catching something that's potentially actionable is quite good. Um, it doesn't replace tissue biopsy, in my opinion, but I think starting with plasma is probably appropriate. And I would say that she's a, this patient is a smoker, so important to get pdl one testing to get a sense of, um, you know, if she does not have a molecularly targeted or an oncogene-addicted tumor, where can we, can we give her immunotherapy alone, or should we give her combination chemoimmunotherapy? Could she be a candidate for other clinical trials? Um, so I think in addition to NGS... Uh, I will also put in a plug for BDL one mm-hmm. testing. So, uh, as Chair has pointed out, we will, uh, in addition to tissue, uh, frequently get uh, plasma testing as well. We we have a commercial alliance with Garden, but there are so many other companies as well that are doing this. And uh, as uh, I think all of you have pointed out, I know uh, Helen, you pointed this out. Uh, uh, I think all three of you had the pie charts that uh, showed that. Uh, Plasma will pick up uh, some mutations that are simply not seen in the tissue, maybe because of sampling or because of inadequacy, which is still a big issue. In our initial evaluation of uh, tissue and plasma together, uh, published uh, last year by Jeff Thompson, Charu, and uh, Erica Carpenter, who met yesterday, were uh, 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 integral to that effort. Uh, About half the patients did not have tissue. Uh, either the tissue was inadequate, it was QNS, it was inaccessible, the patients refused biopsy. So it's a major complement. Uh, of course, in initial diagnosis, you, you need tissue, uh, for sure. And really, as, uh, as uh, Leslie Litsky pointed out yesterday, we look at pdl one in concert with everything else. I think the final point, um, particularly uh, as, we, as RET is now turning into a uh, upfront actionable uh, marker. Uh, that pie is getting sliced and diced at increasingly tiny intervals, but each one of those intervals, each one of those slices has unique oncogenic drivers or driver that has unique therapy, and uh, it's important not to miss that. The patient's uh, progression-free and long-term survival really hinge on that. And if I can build on that, so pr- more practical considerations. When you're taking care of your patient, because PDL1 testing is an immunohistochemical test, most likely in the majority of the institution, it will come to you before you have an, um, the molecular testing. So if you have a patient with PDL1 high tumor, um, as been shown by Dr. Agarwal, that is should not be an indication for you to give them PDL1 inhibitors because they could still have an EGFR mutation or ALK mutation. And the Lisbeth paper is actually very sobering that there was no responses in the patients who were PDL1 high who had an EGFR mutation. So I would wait. It's yeah. hard. It's because you're tempted to start immediately. Exactly. You, right. you have that result. And the patient wants you to because they see the glossy ads for the immunotherapy, <laughs> and so they know that they're people. Beth pointed out yesterday, uh, direct-to-consumer uh, marketing <laughs> has a big influence. But this also is where I think we really need to engage the other members of our team. So the pathologist... Uh, down in his or her lab that doesn't have the patient right in front of them doesn't always have the same experience of urgency with getting the tissue processed and out. And the pathology systems are 
very carefully systematized so that everything is done right, but are not designed to do anything fast. And so getting your pathologists to process tissue and get it out quickly is really the key, in my view, to cutting down some of this turnaround time. We send ours uh, out to a local lab that will do a turnaround of about 10 days. But ten you, business days or ten consecutive about days? About ten consecutive wow. days. But to do that, you've got to get the tissue to them quickly. So in our institution, if you biopsy on Wednesday, it's probably not going out until Monday or Tuesday. And so that's already built in a delay that's, that's not great. And so you have to really micromanage that, especially since the electronic systems don't talk to each other from the clinical system to the path system. So remember, if you've got a sick patient and you have a high index Start of suspicion... Chemo. It, while you're doing the NGS, it's reasonable also to do spot mutation testing, mm-hmm. I think, Absolutely. under those circumstances. Before we go into the um, uh, interactive ARS questions, I want to ask each of you in sequence, uh, before the advent of osimertinib, what your standard treatment was uh, and whether the Lux th- lung 3 or 6 data influenced that decision. We'll start off with you, Luda. My standard treatment was erlotinib, um, and basically mostly due to toxicity. Um, I'm not the, – the, the exon 19 data in Lux Lung 3 and Lux Lung um, – Can you clarify so, for the audience? So um, the Lux Lung 3 and the long, Lux Lung things, 6 was a randomized clinical trials which compared afatinib to gefitinib. Um, and, um, to the, uh, chemo. To ke- uh, sorry, to chemotherapy. And then um, they combined those analysis and showed that patients who have an EGFR deletion 19 mutations had a survival benefit with afatinib compared to chemotherapy. And patients who did not have, um, who had the L858R, there was improvement in progression for survival as did deletion 19s, but there was no improvement in overall survival. Personally, my personal feeling, I have not changed my practice. I'm so, not giving a fatnip to my, was not, and am not uh, giving a fatnip to my deletion 19 patients. It's a single study, um, and we know that deletion 19 patients do better than L58Rs anyway, and I'm not sure that the single study will change my practice, and a fatnip is much more toxic. It was toxic. a retrospective analysis. Um, yeah. Helen, what was your practice before OC? Or I, I assume everybody's using OC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Helen? For, for the most part. The, I, I agree with uh, Luda with a little bit of caveat in frail people, especially frail Asian mm-hmm. people for whom I actually sometimes will use Jafitnip. Jafitnip, okay. Chara? So I use OC now. OC, yeah, we all do. <laughs> so I, well, the question all, is um, about what was I using before OC, and mm-hmm. um, I have to say I agree with Luda. I think Erlotinib is just so much better tolerated in my experience than a Fatinib that I was still preferentially using that pre-Osimortinib. Mm-hmm. So I'm the one outlier. I was using a Fatinib in Exxon 19, but not at the full dose. We'd start off at 20 and then build up if they could tolerate a Fatinib. My nurse practitioners basically rebelled. They said they would not start anybody at 40. <laughs> Um, the patient's quality of life and the staff's quality of life really depends on the toxicity profile of these uh, uh, agents, and 40 is really a, a tough dose. But it certainly had its role. Uh, and uh, I guess the other thing I want to clarify is statistical significance versus clinical significance. The flora data look really positive, not just for PFS overall survival, 
but they weren't able to declare statistical significance. Luda, you were um, alluding to that. I think the overall survival data is not mature yet, yeah. so that's why the hazard ratio of 0.64 is pretty actually pretty impressive. And when Dacamitnip versus Jifitnip overall survival benefit was revealed at ASCO, I believe, mm-hmm. if, I look, if you look back, the hazard ratio for that trial is 0.63. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I think we just need time. We're seeing a consistent yeah. theme. I think course, we need time. First genera- second generation versus the third generation. So if we can go to the interactive questions. So um, by way of uh, our little discussion here, 46-year-old never smoker presents with headaches, brain uh, MRI is uh, alarming with uh, multiple lesions and vasogenic edema, uh, right upper lobe mass mediastinal adenopathy, liver lesions, Right upper lobe is adenocarcinoma, exon 19 deletion. She gets uh, whole brain radiation. Which of the following drugs is the best treatment option for the patient uh, currently? Aha. Uh-huh. So would you all agree or at this point? So let me um, do a little thought experiment. If Dacomitnib's toxicity profile wasn't so formidable, would uh, you think that DACO might make inroads here or no? Uh, Helen is shaking her head no, (laughs) but not saying anything. Helen first. (laughs) So I think the CNS activity is the real Uh dividing line here. So I think that even with better toxicity, the answer is no. Chara, you agree? I I completely agree. I think in the hypothetical scenario of DACO was really well tolerated, I would still want to be able to offer high CNS activity. Um, Again, we know that a significant number of patients never make it to second line. And I think just based on that alone, it's best to offer whatever we know at the time is the most active, well-tolerated drug. You're not daunted by the fact that we really don't have a standard second-line treatment in this setting, whereas before 60% were getting T790 and sort of knew what to go to. Do we know the uh, uh, molecular profile of DACA resistance? Is it the same as erlotinib and Jafidinib? Is it the same 50 or 60% or is that not clear? I haven't seen it's clear yet. I would expect it to be the same, but I haven't seen any data. And Luda, I imagine you agree. I agree. And, and the main, the, one of, you know, toxicity being aside, my main rationale not to use dacamitinib first line is assuming the resistant mechanism is going to be the same, that means that 40% of the patients will not have T790M. So for the 40% of your patients, your PFS is only 15 months, versus for osimertinib, the PFS is 19 months, the median, for 100% of the patients. Mm-hmm. With Plus, a lot less toxicity. Yeah, with yeah. a lot less toxicity. And with yeah. the brain activity. So, yeah. that, so thought experiment number two, though, is should the patient have gotten whole brain radiation? Exactly. Uh, I was hoping one of you would bring that up. <laughs> and I think and this patient had vasogenic edema, had headaches, and, you know, I think in patients who have multiple lesions, who are very symptomatic, um, I think it's a very fair question, should we even do this? But I, mm-hmm. I do um, still refer patients for radiation that are ve- very symptomatic or require steroids. So, Helen, would you just start steroids, hope that the symptoms get better, so, and then see how the OC you know, Obviously, we didn't see the brain MRI, right. so we don't know how alarming this looks, but uh, if somebody's, if the presenting neurologic symptom is just headache, I am entirely non-averse to starting steroids, and if the symptoms are getting better in a day, starting the How soon would you repeat the brain MRI? 
Usually three or four weeks. So and, just and to make sure things are three or four weeks, you're usually actually down. seeing response. And if you see response and you're, you have sluggish response <clears throat> in one or two places, our radiation oncologists are quite happy to do SRS to those lesions. So Lydia, I, you, uh, you uh, practice on the West Coast, which is a hotbed of EGFR. What's your approach? Um, same as Helen. So Helen, I so. would, uh, you know, again, those decisions in my institutions are done um, as a consensus decision between me and radiation oncologists. We can actually go on the phone and look at the uh, MRIs together. Um, I would start her on steroids. I would give her osimertinib. Um, even if the radiation oncologist um, already saw the patient before me, they still need time for simulation. <laughs> I actually had patients <laughs> where we were ready to radiate and it took two weeks to do the simulation. And when the patient came for in for, meds, to, headaches, for the brain really? meds, and then and when the patient came in for the patient came in the tumors were gone. So, yeah. like in two yeah. weeks, so, I've had patients responded as quickly as two yeah. weeks. So they said, oh, mistake, huh? Um, I think it depends a lot on who sees the patient first. And uh, a lot of uh, radiation oncologists, I mean, you know. If it's a nail and you got a hammer, you're going to bang it in. Uh, multiple brain mets, vasogenic edema symptoms, uh, the inclination is still to uh, uh, go ahead. There was this interesting retrospective study published in the JCO. I think you're probably all familiar with it, that looked at brain mets, looked at TKI alone, TKI plus SRS, or TKI plus whole brain, and granted retrospective, not uh, randomized, Groups that got both radiation and TKI actually had better survival. This was Thoughts all about before that? Before the modern. So era. this is pre OC. So this is pre OC, so uh -huh. not probably relevant to my decision making now. And it's also retrospective analysis, so we don't know anything why the mm -hmm. patient did not get whole brain radiation. Maybe they weren't responding, they were a poor performance status or something else. So I really, at this point, I think this study needs to be confirmed prospectively. Um, and that article is often trotted out by the radiation oncologist <laughs> to justify going. So it helps early. a lot if you have a multidisciplinary <laughs> tumor board because that gets everybody on the same page. Sometimes. Uh, if we go to the next question. <laughs> so a patient presents with metastatic non-small cell to liver and adrenals. Molecular testing again reveals exon 19. Which of the following strategies been shown to improve? And this is why I was going through that discussion. Let's use the term statistically significantly <laughs> improve both PFS and OS compared to either chemo alone or first-generation TKIs by either prospective or retrospective analysis. There's a lot of little caveats here. <laughs> so it actually went down, okay. <laughs> I think people are very impressed. Uh, by, you know, the, the OC data, of course, also have gone down. Uh, what's gone up is number three. Uh, so uh, the, the study that seemed to have come out of left field, because I don't remember even knowing about that trial. So uh, Charu, what's your thoughts about that? Do you think we're ready for a study that would perhaps compare OC to OC-PEM-CARBO? 
uh, maybe in sicker patients? I think that's a question that's begging to be asked. Um, you know, I think uh, gefitinib was a perfect TKI to pair with chemotherapy in, on that trial because we know that... Well, that, that was what was available at the time. Also, I think in hindsight, sure, that was available, but it's one of the better um, agents that can be combined with chemotherapy with less toxicity. I think knowing what we know about osimertinib, it would perhaps marry well with chemotherapy. And um, I think it would be a very interesting study. I would definitely sign up patients. You would for put patients on Helen. Would you put patients? Yeah, on absolutely. Uh, Lita. Yeah, I think fifty-two months is all pretty impressive. All patients or just those who are really sick, or it doesn't matter. Probably put all patients. Yeah. All patients. Yeah. How the, long the, would you give the chemo? Four cycles. Continue the PEM as maintenance or stop? Um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe. Probably, <laughs> have a, probably maybe have a third <laughs> arm with maintenance. <laughs> I think this is what we really need to explore. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, is anybody aware of such a trial? I guess we can originate it here. Um, (laughs) You know, in the old days when we were uh, giving TKIs empirically, before we even knew about EGFR mutation, there was concerns about antagonism Mm -hmm. between the chemo and uh, TKIs. But I guess these data would suggest that all bets are off if there's a driver mutation. Mm -hmm. So if we can go to the next uh, question. Of all the actionable oncogenic drivers, which is the most common? Again, the key adjective here is actionable. Uh, Helen will comment after you vote. Okay, Helen. They've done pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I need much comment. <laughs> <laughs> they did pretty well before, they but uh, they've done even better. So KRAS is the most common, but as you alluded, it's not quite actionable. Uh, any not thoughts quite, about yeah. that? Well, That's not really what I asked you to cover. But it, it is not what you asked me to cover. <laughs> and, you know, I think we're getting there. I think that the the key to looking at downstream mechanisms and inhibition of downstream pathways is where we're going to have success. The problem is that um, it's then not a 25% block. It's what the downstream issue is for each particular patient. So I don't think we're at a... Stage yet where we have sufficient understanding of the crosshog between the pathways to make a, a plan. And I'm not aware of a study that has shed any significant light yet. Mm-hmm. Any other comments, Luda? Charo? So um, some questions are coming in. Um, any preference on TKI best, uh, based on the different EGFR mutations? Or I guess it doesn't matter in the OCR. Oh, we have one more question. Actually, we'll Go to this question first and then go to the uh, question here. Uh, does it matter? OC is equally good for both? or So for their, I'll take that. So for the, for the sensitizing mutations for the L858R and deletion 19, um, I think OC would be my first choice. Um, however, for your atypical mutations, mm-hmm. which we nev- didn't cover today, so there is a mutation in exome 18, which we call an um, atypical mutation or non-classic mutations, which is usually L861Q, um, um, then there is like G7118 something. Um, <laughs> those mutations are generally resistant to first-generation EGFR TKIs, meaning erlotinib and gefitinib. Those mutations are generally sensitive to afatinib uh, because there is a very nice preclinical data because of the way the afatinib binds to those mutations. Um, it has been shown preclinically and confirmed clinically that afatinib would be the choice for that mutation. The recent presentation of osimertinib at World Lung, uh, where osimertinib was tried for the uh, atypical mutation, 
also showed some efficacy specifically for the L861Q. Um, and in again, all collaborated with the preclinical data. So I like make decisions if I have a preclinical data and I have a clinical data following with that. So osimertinib preclinically has been pre predicted to be highly sensitive for 861Q. But we haven't Q. seen quite as much data there as we have for a fat We don't, but there is the, the, the ASCA, the World Lung presentation, did show some patients and the highest response rate was an 861Q mutation. So you would use OC in the atypicals or efatinib? Um, <laughs> OC. I will try OC. OC. Just Helen, have you made wise. the transition or no? No, not yet. So you're still using efatinib yes. in that group? Yeah, I haven't made the transition so, so you're using efatinib, and I'm using efatinib. So three out of yeah. four. Uh, and again, right, with the though, lower dose. But I think we're all the, eagerly for awaiting. For the 861, I'm definitely going to use OC. Hmm? For the 861 mutation, I'm definitely going to use OC. Okay. The other ones... Okay. And then for Stay Exon tuned, 20, more data. And then yeah, for, for Exon 20, 20 we didn't there is a clinical trial that's evaluating higher dose of osimertinib right. at 160. Um, so again, you know, there's a lot of variability in terms of the atypical mutations and what they may respond to. Although yeah. when they compared 80 and 160, at least I guess in the second line setting, there didn't seem to be much difference in uh, sensitivity. So uh, please answer this question uh, about sensitivity and specificity of uh, liquid biopsies. 90-95% uh, specific, sensitivity 65-70%. Uh, second choice is a reversal of that, or they're both equally sensitive and specific at about 80%. Um, okay, Helen? Well... <laughs> Um, it, it's difficult because these numbers are variable from assay to assay and report to report, but the general rule and the way to remember it is that if you find something in plasma, it's quite specific, so that 90 to 95% specificity may be higher is there. than it really is, but it's in, the, in that ballpark. Yeah, but the, the sensitivity is really the problem, and that's based on the amount of CTDNA compared to other cell-free DNA that's circulating, the amount that's shed based on how active the tumor is and where the metastatic sites are. And so if you've got somebody particularly who is progressing and you're looking at progression, because we follow these patients very closely now, you often see very small volume progression. And when you see very small volume progression, you may not have enough sensitivity from a plasma test. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, because if you get something, then you can act upon it. But if you don't get something, you have to try and find another way to assay. So the correct answer is number one. Many of you still chose number two, and I think this is an important uh, teaching point. At least some improvements uh, have been seen. Uh, obviously, we're hoping for a day when we can get both of those up to 90 95%. So I think one of the things that we have shown recently in our publication with the use of plasma-based testing is that patients that tend to have M1A disease or intrathoracic disease alone uh, tend to have a much poorer yield in plasma. I think that's a limitation that we must acknowledge uh, patients. And this has also uh, been demonstrated in the melanoma literature that patients with just cutaneous metastases or patients with brain-only disease, uh, the plasma detection rate may be lower. Uh, so I think that's where most of the sensitivity is being driven from. But if there is somebody who has a lot of burden of disease, and we show this in our paper that was just published, that if there is liver meds and there is other visceral disease involved, that the sensitivity of catching a mutation in the plasma is pretty high. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, I think that's it for questions, or is there another? Okay. 
Um, questions come up, uh, do all of the liquid uh, biopsy tests use plasma? Or do some use serum? Does it matter? Um, comments? So most of the ones that I'm aware of are plasma-based um, sequencing approaches. I think that there are still some assays that people are doing in-house, but by and large, serum's gone away and plasma is... Uh-huh. But the, the and commercially the kids, available I think the kids ones, all use plasma. Foundation, garden, etc., are all using plasma. Yeah. Um, uh, another interesting question. What percentage of your EGFR positive patients, so mutant <coughs> positive patients, make it to second line uh, versus wild-type patients? Is there a difference, or do you think these patients, because they've done so well with the first-line TKI that we usually whip them into shape and they're better capable of getting to second-line? So if you look at the FLORA data, um, actually in the supplemental figures of the NAGM paper... Sometimes the um, most valuable charts are in the supplemental supplemental figures, exactly. 17% of the patients did not get um, osimertinib. They died before they could get... They they don't say what happened. They just basically didn't get it. Either died or lost your follow-up or something. This is in a control arm. It's in a control arm. So when you got first generation of GFR TKI, Mm -hmm. and then 17% of the patients never got osimertinib, which to me it was higher than I was expecting. I was expecting 5%, 7%. But 17% is actually pretty pretty high. And with the chemotherapy, we know it's about 30%. It could have been massive brain meds. Things happen. It could have been small cell. It could have been PS, Scott. Yeah. Um, what about OC? Um, your OC? I guess a lot of our OC patients have not had Haven't disease progression yet. yet so, so. <laughs> uh, and then another uh, interesting uh, question: uh, What percentage of your EGFR positive patients, so mutant positive, are PDL1 positive? And I think, for the sake of argument, fifty percent or higher. Chara, what's your experience? So from the Flora data, they found about 20 to 30 percent uh, were, or from the tested samples, were PDL1 high. Um, I would believe that that would be the prevalence. Um, certainly, I've had cases come back. Um, if I were to guesstimate in our population at Penn, there would probably be about 30 percent or so also. So you think it's pretty much close to the usual the prevalence? Mm-hmm. Helen? Yeah, I agree. Luda? I agree. There, really? is a, there is a paper. I don't it's been, my impression is it's right a little <laughs> bit lower, but not much lower, like 20 25%. But needless to say, there are a lot of patients out there have not just EGFR, but oncogenic drivers plus high PDL1. And I think, as Helen's pointed out in her last slide, the oncogenic driver governs at least initial treatment. Now, you all talked about the relative inactivity of uh, IOs of immunotherapy in this group. But that's single-agent IOs. So the combination with chemo after, uh, in the development of TKI resistance, I think all bets are off. Would you yes. agree with that? Yeah. And I think Empower 150 is actually very clear that we need to investigate that region. And I think our final question before we go to our break uh, is uh, actually breaking early. Uh, with first-generation TKI, we used to hear about dosing to toxicity, I guess an era when some of these agents were a little bit less toxic, although OC is the least toxic. In other words, adding food to increase absorption. Does anybody ever do that to OC? Does it matter? We uh, pretty much stick with the 80-milligram dose. Um, 
I've been Dara. sticking with the 80 milligram dose actually. Um, have had very few patients requiring a dose reduction. I think I saw one of yours, Corey, who was uh, dose reduced, but really, I mean, I've it's had that's very the one patient I've had yes. that required. She actually, she's an outlier. She had more uh, toxicity on OC than she had on her lot. And, uh, for the it's, most part, uh, these patients come in and say, Where is this? Why have you been keeping this drug from me? Because they, the, the contrast between the two is so uh, striking. Helen? Yeah, I agree. I think that the, the dose-to-rash plan or dose-to-toxicity plan was really before we knew what we know now about the mutation status and, and how to look at these patients. So there's if you're starting with fatinib, there's enough toxicity to begin with, and I agree that the OC generally doesn't need to be escalated. Mm-hmm. So the only um, – I, I, I don't empirically dose-reduce. Um, I would consider 160 milligrams for patients with leptomeningeal carcinomatosis mm-hmm. based on Bloom data. Um, the Bloom study uh, took the patients with leptomeningeal carcinomatosis as well as CNS metastasis and uh, gave them all 160 milligrams of osimertinib. Um, in the Bloom study, the data that has been reported to this point, we do not have any data on 80 milligrams, so we don't know if 80 milligrams is going to be as effective as 160. The decision to go with 160 was just a scientific decision by the company. If we give 160 and it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if we give 80 and it doesn't work, then we'll have to see if 160 is going to work. So I have been able to get osimertinib approved by you know highly prevalent HMOs in the West Coast um, showing leptomyrtinib. Yeah, we've been. I've been able to do the yeah. same on the East Coast with our um, multiple, multiple insurance companies.